and welcome to another episode of The Bike Shed, a weekly podcast from your friends at ThoughtBot about developing great software. I'm Joelle Kenville, and today I'm joined by a very special guest, former host Chris Toomey. Hey, Joelle. Thanks for having me. And together, we're here to share a little bit of what we've learned along the way. So, Chris, what's new in your world? Being on this podcast is new in my world, uh, or everything old is new again, or something along those lines. But uh, yeah, thank you so much for having me back. It's uh, it's a pleasure, although it's it's very odd. It feels somehow so different and yet very familiar. But yeah, more generally, what's new in my world? Uh, I think this was probably in development as I was winding down my time as a host here on the bike show. But I don't know that I ever got a chance to talk about it. There's been a fun sort of uh, deep in the weeds technical thing that we've been playing around with at Sagewell that I've really enjoyed. Um, so at the core of it, we have serializers. So we take some data structures in our Ruby on Rails code base, and we need to serialize them to JSON to send them to the front end. In our case, we're using inertia. So it's not quite a JSON API, but it's fine to think about it in that way uh, for the context of this discussion. Um, and what we were finding is our front end has TypeScript. So we're writing Svelte, which is using TypeScript. And so we're stating or asserting that the type's like, hey, we're going to get this data in from the back end, and it's going to have this shape to it. And we found that it was really hard to keep those in sync to keep like, what does a user mean on the front end? What's the data that we're going to get? It's going to have a full name, which is a string, except sometimes that might be null. So how do we make sure that those are keeping up to date? And then we had a growing number of serializers on the back end and determining which serializer we were actually using. And it was just, it was a mess, uh, to put it lightly. And so we had explored a couple different options around it. And eventually we found a library called Primalize. So Primalize is a Ruby library. Uh, it is for writing JSON serializers. But what's really interesting about it is it has a typing layer. It's like a type system sort of thing at play. So when you define a serializer in Primalize, instead of just saying like, here are the fields, there's an ID, a name, et cetera, you say there is an ID and it is a string. There is a name and it is a string or an optional string, which is the even more interesting bit. You can say array, you can say object, you can say an enum of a couple of different values. And so we looked at that and we said, oh, this is very interesting. Um, astute listeners will know that this is probably useless in a Ruby system, which doesn't have types or a compilation step or anything like that. But what's really cool about this is when you use a primalized serializer, as you're serializing an object, if there is ever a type mismatch, so the observed type at runtime and the authored type, uh, if those ever mismatch, then you can have some sort of notification happen. So in our case, we configured it to send a warning to Sentry to say like, hey, you said the types were this, but they're at, we're actually seeing this other thing. Most often it'll be like an optional, a null sneaking through, a nil sneaking through on the Ruby side. Uh, but what was really interesting is as we were squinting at this, we're like, huh, so now we're going to write all this type information. What if we could somehow get that type information down to the front end? So I had a long weekend, one weekend, and I went away and I wrote a bunch of code that took all of those serializers, ran through them and generated the associated TypeScript interfaces. And so now we have a build step that will essentially run that and assert that we're getting you know, the same thing in CI as we have committed to the code base. But now we have the generated serializer types on the front end that match to the used serializer on the back end, uh, as well as the observed runtime types. So it's a combination of a true like compilation step type system on the front end and a runtime type system on the back end, which has been very, very interesting. I have a lot of thoughts here. Yeah, uh, I figured you the would. The came to mind is as a consultant, there's a scenario with especially smaller startups that generally concerns me. 
And that is the CTO goes away for a weekend, <laughs> writes a lot of code, and brings in a new system on Monday, uh, which is exactly what you're describing here. How do you feel about the fact that you've done that? I wasn't ready to go this deep this early on in this episode, <laughs> but honestly, that is a fantastic question. It's a thing that I have been truly not struggling with, but really thinking about. We're going to go on a slight aside here, but I am finding it really difficult to engage with the actual day-to-day coding work that we're doing and to still stay close to the code base and not be in the way. There's a pattern that I've seen happen a number of times now where I pick up a piece of work that is you know, one of the tickets at the top of the backlog. I start to work on it. I get pulled into a meeting, then another meeting, then three more meetings, and suddenly it's three days later. I haven't completed this piece of work that was defined to be the next most important piece of work, and suddenly I'm blocking the team. So I Mm. largely made a rule that I'm not allowed to own critical path work, which feels weird because it's like I want to be engaged with that work. So the counterpoint to that is I'm now trying to schedule pairing sessions with each of the developers on the team once a week. And in that time, I can work on that sort of stuff with them and they'll then own it and run with it. So it makes sure that I'm not blocking on those sort of things, but I'm still connected to the core work that we're doing. But the other thing that you're describing of the CTO goes away for the weekend and then comes back with a new harebrained scheme, uh, I'm very sensitive to that. Uh, Having worked on, frankly, I think the same project, I can think of a project that you and I worked on where we experienced this. I think we're thinking of the same project. Uh, So yes, I'm scarred by that and frankly, a handful of experiences of that nature. So we actually, I think, have a really healthy system in place at SageWell for capturing, documenting, prioritizing this sort of other work, this developer-centric work. So this isn't the feature and bug work that gets prioritized in one list over here that is owned by our product manager. Separately, the dev team gets to say, here are the pain points, here's the stuff that keeps breaking, here are the things that I wish was better, here's the observability, uh, like hard to understand bits. And so we have a couple of different systems at play and recurring meetings and sort of unique ceremonies around that. And so this work was very much a fallout of that. It was actually a recurring topic that we kept trying a couple of different stabs at and we never quite landed it. And then I showed up, you know, this one Monday morning and I was like, I found a thing. What do we think? And then critically from there, I made sure I paired with other folks on the team as we pushed on the implementation. And then actually, I mentioned Primalize, the library that we're using. We have now since deprecated Primalize within the app because we kept just adding to it so much that eventually we're like, at this point, should we own this stuff? So we ended up rewriting the core bits of Primalize to better fit our use cases. And now we've actually removed Primalize. Wonderful library, highly recommended to anyone who has that particular use case, but then the additional type generation for the front end. Plus, we have some custom types within our app, um, money being the most interesting one. We decided to model money as a first class consideration rather than just letting JavaScript have the sole idea of a number. Um, but yes, to in a very long-winded way, yes, I'm very sensitive to the thing you described. And I hope in this case, I did not fall prey to the CTO goes away for the weekend and made a thing. I think what I'm hearing is the key difference here is that you got buy-in from the team around this idea before you went out and implemented it. So you're not off doing your own things, disconnected from the team and then imposing it from on high. The team already agreed this is the thing we want to do, and then you just did it for them. Largely, yes, although I will say there are times that each developer on the team, myself included, have sort of gone away, come back with something and said like, hey, here's a whip PR. 
exploring an area. And there was actually, I'm forgetting what the context was, but there was one that happened recently that I introduced. I was like, I just, I had to do this. And the team talked me out of it. And I ended up closing that PR. Someone else actually made a different PR that was an alternative implementation. I was like, nope, that's better. We should absolutely do that. And I think that's really healthy. That's a hard thing to maintain, but making sure that everyone feels like they've got a strong voice and that we're considering all of the different ways in which we might consider the work most critically, you know, how does this impact users at the end of the day? That's always the the primary consideration. How do we make sure we build a robust, maintainable, observable system, all those sort of things. And primarily this work should go in that other direction. But I also don't want to like stifle that creative spark of I just I got this thing in my head and I had to explore it. Like we shouldn't then need to never mind, throw away the work, put it into a ticket. Like for as long as we can, that more organic, intuitive process, if we can retain that I like that critically with the ability for everyone to tell me, no, this is a bad idea. Stop it. What are you doing? And that has happened recently. I mean, they were kinder about it, but they did talk me out of a bad idea. So here we are. So you showed up on Monday morning, not with telling everyone, hey, I merged this thing over the weekend. You're showing up with like a work in progress PR. Yes, definitely. I mean, everything goes through a PR and everything has discussion and conversation around it. Uh, that's a strong, strong, like uh, Derek Pryor's wonderful talk building a culture of code review. I forget the exact name of it, but it's one of my favorite talks and talking about the utility of code review as a way to share ideas and all of those wonderful things. So everything goes through code review and particularly anything that is of that more exploratory architectural space that absolutely like often we'll say any one review from anyone on the team is sufficient to merge most things. But something like that, I would want to say like, hey, can everybody take a look at this? And if anyone has any reservations, then let's talk about it more. But if I get like, you know, if I or anyone else on the team for this sort of work gets uh, everybody approving it, then cool, we're good to go. But yeah, code review, critical, critical part of the process. I'm curious about uh, Primalize, the gem that you mentioned. It sounds like it's some kind of validation layer between Mm -hmm. some Ruby data structure and uh, your serializers. Uh, It is the serializer, but in the process of serializing, it does runtime type validation, essentially. So as it's accessing, you know, you say first name, you have a user object, you pass it in and you say serializer, there's a first name and it's a string, it will call the first name method on that user object. And then it will check that it has the expected type. And if it doesn't, then in our case, it sends to Sentry. Um, We have it configured, it's actually interesting in development and test mode, it will raise for a type mismatch. And in production mode, it will alert Sentry. So you can configure that differently. But that ends up being really nice because these type mismatches end up being very loud early on. And it's actually, it's surprisingly easy to maintain and ends up telling us a lot of truths about our system because really what we're doing is connecting data from many different systems and sort of flowing it in and out. And so this, all of the inputs and outputs from our system feel very meaningful to lock down in this way. But yeah, it's, it's been an adventure. It seems to me there could almost be like two sets of types here. The inputs coming into Primalize from your Ruby data structures and then the outputs that are the actual serialized values. And so you might expect, let's say, an integer on the Ruby side, but maybe at the serialization level, you're serializing it to a string. Do you have that sort of conversion step as part of your serializers sometimes? Or is the idea that everything's already the right type on the Ruby side, and then we just like two JSON it at the end? Yeah, Primalize, I think, probably works a little closer to what you're describing. They have the idea of coercions. So... Uh, within Primalize, there is the concept of a timestamp. That is one of the types that is available. 
but a timestamp is sort of the union of a date, a time, or I think they might let through a string. I'm not sure there as well. But frankly, for us, that was more ambiguity than we wanted or more sort of blurring across the lines. And we, in the implementation that we've now built, date and time are distinct. And critically, a string is not a valid date or time. It is a string. That's another thing. And so there's a bunch of plumbing within the way you define the serializers. There are override methods so that you can locally within the serializer say like, oh, we need to coerce from this shape of data into this other shape of data, even little like inline procs so we can do it quickly. But the idea is that the data, once it is being passed to the serializer, should be of the the right shape. And so when we get to the type assertion part of the library, uh, we expect that things are in the asserted type and will warn if not. We get surprisingly few warnings, which is interesting now. This whole process has made us like pay a little more attention and it's been less arduous simultaneously than I would have expected. Because like this kind of a lot of work that I'm describing and yet it ends up being very natural when you're the developer in context like, oh, I've been reading these docs for days. I know the shape of this JSON that I'm working with inside and out. And now I'll just write it down in the serialize. It's very easy to do in that moment. And then it captures it and enforces it in such a useful way. Uh, as an aside, I've, as I've been looking at this, I'm like, this is just GraphQL, but inside out, I'm pretty sure. But that is a choice that we have made. We didn't want to adopt the whole GraphQL thing. But just for anyone out there is listening and is thinking, isn't this just GraphQL, but inside out? Kind of, yes. I think my favorite part of GraphQL is the schema, mm. which is not really the selling point for GraphQL. You know, like the idea that you can traverse the graph and get any subset of data that you want and all that. I think I would be more than happy with a REST API that has some kind of schema built around it. And someone told me that maybe what I really just want is SOAP. Uh, and I don't know how to feel about that comment. Uh, I just got to have some XML and some WSDLs and other fun things. Uh, I've heard people say good things about SOAP. SOAP seems like a fine idea. Um, if anything, I think a critical part of this is we don't have a JSON API. We have a very tightly coupled front end and back end and a singular front end, frankly. And so that, I think, naturally, th that makes the thing that I'm describing here a much more comfortable fit. If we had multiple different downstream clients that we're trying to consume from the same backend, then I think a GraphQL API or some other structured JSON schema, whatever it is, type of API and associated documentation and typing layer would be probably a better fit. But as I've said many a time on this here bike shed, uh, Inertia is one of my favorite libraries or frameworks. They're probably more of a framework. One of my favorite technological approaches that I have ever found. And particularly in building SageWell, it has allowed us to move so rapidly. The idea that changes are you know, one fell swoop changes everything within the code base. We don't have to think about distinct deploys for the back end and the front end and how to coordinate across them. Our app is so much easier to understand by virtue of that architecture that Inertia implies. So if I understand correctly, you don't serialize to JSON as part of these serializers. You're serializing directly to JavaScript? We do serialize to JSON. At the end of the day, Inertia takes care of this on both the Rails side and the client side. There is a JSON API. Like If you look at the network inspector, you will see XHR requests happening. But critically, we're not doing that. We're not the ones in charge of it. We're not like hitting a specific endpoint. It feels as a an application coder much closer to a traditional Rails app. It just happens to be that we're writing our, our view layer. Instead of in ERB, we're writing them in Svelte files. But otherwise, it feels almost identical to a normal traditional Rails app with controllers and the normal routing and all that kind of stuff. 
One thing that's really interesting about JSON as an interchange format is that it is very restrictive. The primitives that it has are even narrower than, say, the primitives that Ruby has. So you'd mentioned sending a date through. Uh, there is no JSON date. You have to serialize it to some other type, potentially an integer, potentially a string that has some, like a format that the other side knows how it's going to interpret. And I feel like it's those sort of richer types uh, when we need to pass them through JSON that serialization and deserialization or parsing on the other end um, become really interesting. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. It was a struggling point for a while until we found this new uh, approach that we're doing with the, the serializers and the type system. But so far, the only thing that we've done this with is money. But on the front end, a while ago, we introduced a specific TypeScript type. Uh, so it's a phantom type, and I believe I'm getting this correct. It's a phantom type called sense, C-E-N-T-S. Uh, and so it represents, I'm going to say an integer. I know that JavaScript doesn't have integers, but logically, it represents an integer amount of sense. And critically, it is not a number, like the lowercase number in the type system. We cannot add them together. I we you are going to say N-A-N. <laughs> it is not a number. Uh, I saw an N slash A for not applicable somewhere in the application the other day. I was like, oh my God, we have a NAN. <laughs> it happened, but it wasn't. It was just N slash A and I was fine. But yeah, so we have this idea of sense within the application. We have a money input, which is a special input designed exactly for this. So it, to a user, it is formatted to look like you're entering dollars and cents. But under the hood, we are bidirectionally converting that to the integer amount of sense that we need. And we strictly, within the type system, those are cents. And you can't do math on sense unless you use a special set of helper functions. You cannot generate sense on the fly unless you use a special set of helper functions, the constructor functions. So we've been really restrictive about that, which was kind of annoying because a lot of the data coming from the server is just you know numbers. But now with this type system that we've introduced on the Ruby side, we can assert and enforce that these are money.new on the Ruby side, so using the money gem. And they come down to the front end as capital C sense in the type system on the TypeScript side. So we're able to actually bind that together and then enforce proper usage sort of on both sides. The next step that we plan to do after that is dates and times. And those are actually almost weirder because they end up, we just have to sort of say what they are and they will be ISO 8601 date and time strings respectively, but we'll have functions that know like this is a date string. That's a thing. It is again, a phantom type implemented within our TypeScript type system, but we will have custom functions that deal with that and really constrain, lock ourselves down to only working with them correctly. And critically saying that is the only date and time format that we work with. There is no other. We don't have arbitrary dates. Is this a JSON date or a something else? I don't know. There's too many date syntaxes. I like the idea of what you're doing uh, in that it sounds like you're very much narrowing that sort of window of where in the stack the data exists in these sort of unstructured free-floating primitives that could be misinterpreted. And so at this point, it's almost narrowed to the point where it can't be touched by any user or developer written code because you've pushed the boundaries on the Rails side down and then on the JavaScript side up to the point where the translation here, you just you define translations on one side, or I guess a parser on one side and a serializer on the other, and they guarantee that everything is good up until that point. Yeah, with the added fun of the runtime uh, reflection, 
on the Ruby side. So it's it's an interesting thing. Like TypeScript actually has similar things. You can say what the type is all day long and your code will consistently conform to that asserted type. But at the end of the day, if your JSON API gets in some different data, unless you're using a library like IOTS is one that I've looked at, which actually does parsing and returns a result object of did we re- parse to the thing that you wanted or did we get an error in you know that data structure so we could get to that level on the client side as well we haven't done that yet um, largely because we've essentially pushed that concern up to the ruby layer so where we're authoring the data because we own that we're going to do it at that level there's a bunch of benefits of defining it there and then sort of reflecting it down but yeah typescript you can absolutely lie to yourself whereas like elm a language that i know you love dearly uh, you cannot lie to yourself in Elm. You've got to tell the truth. It's the only option. You've got to prove it. Uh, whereas in TypeScript, you can just kind of suggest. And TypeScript will be like, all right, cool. I'll make sure you stay honest on that, but I'm not going to make you prove it, uh, which is an interesting sort of set of related trade-offs there. Uh, but I think we found a very comfortable resting spot for right now. Although now we're starting to look at the edges of the Ruby system where data is coming in. So we have lots of like webhooks and other external partners that we're integrating with, and they're sending us data. And that data is of varying shapes. Some will send us a payload with the word amount, and it refers to an integer amount of cents, because of course it does. Some will send us the word amount in their payload, and it will be an integer, no, a floating amount of dollars. And I get a little sad on those days. But critically, like our job is to make sure all of those are the same and that we never pass you know, dollars as cents or cents as dollars, because that's where things go sad. That is job number one at Sagewell and the engineering team is never get the decimal place wrong in money. That would be a pretty terrible mistake to make. It would. I mean, it happens in finance. In fintech, that problem comes up a lot. And again, the fact that I'm honestly surprised to see situations out there where we're getting in floating point dollars, that is a surprise to me because I thought we had all agreed sort of as a community that it was integer sense, but especially in a language that has integers. JavaScript is kind of making it up the whole time, but Ruby has integers. JSON, I guess, doesn't have integers, so I'm sort of mixing concerns here, but you get the idea. Despite Ruby not having like a static type system, I've found that generally when I'm integrating with a third-party API, I get to the point where I want something that approximates like Elm's uh, JSON decoders or IOTS or something like that because JSON is just a sort of big blob of data that could be of any shape and I don't really trust it because it's third-party data and you should not trust third parties. And I find that I end up maybe cobbling something together commonly with like a bunch of uh, usage of hash.fetch, things like that. But I feel like Ruby doesn't have a great approach to sort of parsing and composing these like validators for external data. Ruby as a language certainly doesn't. And the ecosystem, I would say, is rather limited in terms of the options here. We have looked a bit at the dry RB stack of gems. Um, So dry validation and dry schema in particular are both offer potentially useful aspects. We've actually done a little bit of spiking internally around that sort of thing of like, let's parse this incoming data instead of just coercing to hash and saying that it's got probably the shape that we want. And then similarly, yeah, I, I will fetch all day instead of digging because I want to I wanna be quite loud when we get it wrong. Um, but we're already using dry monads. So we have the idea of result types within the system. We can either succeed or fail at certain operations. And I think it's just a little further down the stack, but probably something that we will implement 
soon is at those external boundaries where data is coming in, doing some form of parsing and validation to make sure that it conforms to a known data structure. And then within the app, we can do things more cleanly. That also would allow us to like, let's push the idea that this is floating point dollars all the way out to the edge. And the minute it hits our system, we convert it into a money.new, which means that cents are properly handled, that it's pro- it's the same type of money or dollar, same type of currency handling as everywhere else in the app. And so pushing that to the very edges of our application is a very interesting idea. And so that could happen in a library or you know, sort of a parsing client, I guess is probably the best way to think about it. So I'm excited to do that at some point. Have you read the article, Parse Don't Validate? I actually posted that in uh, some code review the other day to one of the developers on the team, and they replied, you're just going to quietly drop one of my favorite articles of all time in code review. (laughs) So uh, yes, I've read it. I love it. It's a wonderful idea. Uh, Definitely something that I'm intrigued by. And sort of bringing dry monads into Ruby on the one hand feels like a force fit and yet has also been one of the other, I think, strongest sort of architectural decisions that we've made within the application. There's so much imperative work that we end up having to do. You're going to send this off to this external API, then tell this other one, then tell this other one, put the whole thing in a transaction so that our local data properly handles it. And having dry monads do notation in particular to allow us to like make that manageable, but very fail in all the ways it needs to fail, very expressive in its failure modes. That's been great. And then Parstone Validate is, we don't quite do it yet, but that's one of the dreams of like, our code base really should do that thing. We believe in that. So let's get there soon. And the core idea behind Parstone Validate is that instead of just having some data that you don't trust, running a check on it and passing that blob of now checked, but still untrusted data down to the next person who might also want to check it, Generally, you want to pass it through some sort of filter that will, one, validate that it's correct, but then actually typically convert it into some other trusted shape. And in Ruby, that might be something like taking a amorphous blob of JSON and turning it into some kind of value object or something like that. And then anybody downstream that receives a, let's say, a money object can trust that they're dealing with a well-formed money value as opposed to an arbitrary blob of JSON, which hopefully somebody else has validated, but who knows? So I'm going to validate it again. You can tell that I've been out of the podcasting game for a while because I just started responding to, yes, I love that blog post without describing the core premise of it. So kudos to you, Joel. You are a fantastic podcast host over there. I will say one of the things you just described is, is an interesting, it's been a bit of a struggle for us. We keep sort of talking through what's the architecture? How do we want to build this application? What do we care about? What are the what are the things that really matter within this code base? And then what is all the other stuff? And we've been good at determining the things that really matter, thinking collectively as a group, and I think coming up with some novel, useful, elegant, I'm saying too many positive adjectives for what we're doing, but I've been very happy with sort of the thing that we decide. And then there's the long tail work of actually propagating that change throughout the rest of the application. We're like, okay, here's how it works. Every incoming webhook, we now parse and yield a value object. That sentence that you just said a minute ago is exactly what I want. That's like a bunch of work. It's particularly a bunch of work to convert an existing code base. It's easy to like say, okay, from here forward, any new webhooks, payloads that are coming in, we're going to do in this way. But we have a lot of things in our app now that exist in this like half-converted way. Uh, there was a brief period where we had three different serializer technologies at play. Uh, just this week, I did the work of killing off the middle ground one, the primalized-based thing. And we now have only our 
new hotness. And then the very old, we were using blue printer as a serializer as the initial sort of stab. And so that still exists within the code base in some places, but trying to figure out how to prioritize that work, the finishing out those maintenance type conversions is a tricky one. It's never the priority, but it is really nice to have consistency in a code base. So it's, yeah. Do you have any thoughts on that? I think going back to the article and what the, the meaning of parsing is, I used to always think of parsing as taking strings and turning them into something else. And I think this really broadened my perspective on the idea of parsing. And now I think of it more as converting from a broader type to a narrower type with failures. So for example, going you could go from a string to a integer, and not all strings are valid integers. So you're narrowing the type. And if you have the string hello world, it will fail and it will give you an error of some type. But you can have multiple layers of that. So maybe you have a string that you parse into an integer, but then later on you might want to parse that integer into uh, something else that requires an integer in a range. Let's say it's a percentage. Let's say you have a, a value object that is a percentage, but it's encoded in the JSON as a string. So that first pass, you parse it from a string into an integer, and then you parse that integer into a percentage object. But if it's outside the range of valid percentage numbers, then maybe you get an error there as well. So it's a thing that can happen at multiple layers. And I've now really connected it with the primitive obsession smell in code. It's a way oftentimes when you decide, wait, I don't want a primitive here. I want a richer type. Commonly, there's going to be a parsing step that should exist to go from that primitive into the richer type. I like that. That was a classic Joel, wildly concise summary of a deeply complex technical topic right there. It's like, I'm going to connect some ideas from functional programming and a classic object-oriented code smell. And uh, yeah, it's kind of mashed all together with a popular article. If only you had a diagram. Podcast is not the best medium for diagrams, but I think you could do it. You could speak one out loud and everyone would be able to see it in their mind's eye. So I will tell you what my diagram is for this because I've actually created it already. I imagine this as a sort of like pyramid with different layers that keep getting smaller and smaller. So the size of a type is sort of the width of a layer. And so your strings are a very wide uh, layer. Then on top of that, you have a narrower layer that might be, you know, it could be an integer, or you could even if you're parsing JSON, you first you start with a string, then you parse that into a Ruby hash. Not all strings are valid hashes, so that's going to be narrower. Then you might extract some values out of that hash, but if the keys aren't right, that might also fail. You're trying to pull a user out of it. And so each layer gets a richer type, but that richer type, by virtue of being richer, is narrower. And as you're trying to move up that pyramid at every step, there is a possibility for failure. Have you written a blog post about this with said diagram in it? And is that why you have that so readily at hand? Yes, that is the okay. case. Yeah, that made sense to me. <laughs> we'll make sure to link to it in the show notes. Now you have to link to Joel blog posts, whereas I used to have to link to them in almost every episode of the Bike Shed that I recorded. Another thing I've been thinking about in terms of this parsing is that parsing and serializing are, in a sense, almost opposites of each other. Typically, when you're parsing, you're going from a broad type to a narrow one. And when you're serializing, you're going from a narrow type to a broader one. So you might go from a user into a hash into a string. So you're sort of going down that pyramid rather than going up. 
It is an interesting observation and one that immediately my brain's like, okay, cool. So could we reuse our serializers, but just run them in reverse or, and then I try and talk myself out of that because that's a classic don't repeat yourself sort of failure mode of like, actually, it's fine. You can repeat a little bit as long as you can repeat and constrain. That's, that's a fine version, but uh, yeah, feels true though at the core. I think in some ways, if you want a single source of truth, what you want is a schema. And then you can derive serializers and parsers from that schema. It's interesting as you use the word derive, that has been an interesting evolution at Sagewell. The engineering team seems to be very collected around the idea of explicitness. Almost the Zen of Python explicit is better than implicit. And we are willing to write a lot of words down a lot of times. Uh, and be happy with that. I think we actually made the explicit choice at one point that we will not implement a automatic camel case conversion in our serializer, even though we could. This is a knowable piece of code. But what we want is the grepability from the front end to the back end to say, like, wait, where is this data coming from? And being able to say, like, it is this data, which is from this serializer, which comes from this object method, and being able to trace that very literally and very explicitly in the code, even though that is definitely the sort of thing that we could derive or automatically infer or have Ruby do that translation for us. And uh, our code base is more verbose and more a little noisier, but I think overall I've been very happy with it. And I think the team's been very happy, um, but it is an interesting one because I've seen plenty of teams where it is the exact opposite. Any repeated characters must be destroyed. We must write code to write the code for us. And so it's it's fun to be working with a team where we seem to be aligned around a an approach on that front. That example that you gave is really interesting because I feel like a common thing that happens in a serialization layer is also a form of normalization. And so, for example, you might downcase all strings as part of the serialization. Uh, definitely like dates, right? Always get written in ISO 8601 format, whatever that, that happens. And so regardless of how you might have it stored on the Ruby side, by the time it gets to the JSON, it's always in a standard format. And it sounds like you're not necessarily doing that with capitalization. I think the distinction would be the keys and the values. So we are definitely doing normalization on the values side. So ISO 8601 date and time strings, respectively. That is the direction that we plan to go for the value. But then for the key that's associated with that, uh, what is the name for this data? Those we're choosing to be explicit and somewhat repetitive, um, or not even necessarily repetitive, but the idea of like it's first underscore name on the Ruby side and it's first capital N name, camel case, or it's, I forget the name, it's not quite camel case, it's a different one, but uh, lower camel maybe. Um, but anyway, whatever JavaScript uses, we try to bias towards that when we're going to the front end. It does get a little tricky coming back into the Ruby side, so our controllers have a bunch of places where they need to know about what I think is called lower camel case, and so we're not perfect there. But that critical distinction between sort of the names for things and the values for things, transformations and normalizations on the values good with that but we've chosen to go with a much more explicit and much more explicit version for the names of things or the keys in json objects specifically one thing that can be interesting if you have a like normalization phase in your serializer uh, is that that can mean that your serializer and parsers are not necessarily symmetric so you might accept malform data into your parser and parse it correctly but then you can't guarantee that the data that gets serialized out is going to identically match the data that got parsed in. Yeah, that that is interesting. I, I'm not quite sure of the ramifications, although I feel like there are some. Um, I, it almost feels like like formatting prettier and things like that, where they need to like 
hold on to white space in some cases and throw it out in others and thinking about how ASTs work and I don't know, there's interesting stuff. But again, not not sure of the ramifications. Uh, but actually to flip the tables just a little bit, that's an aggressive terminology, but we're going to run with it. Uh, to flip the script, let's go with that. Uh, Joel, what's been up in your world? You've been hosting this wonderful show. I've listened into a number of episodes. You're doing a fantastic job. I want to hear a little bit more of what's new in your world, Joel. So I've been working on a project that has a lot of flaky tests, and we're trying to figure out the source of that flakiness. It's easy to just dive into, oh, I saw a flaky test. Let me try to fix it. But we have so much flakiness that I want to go about it a little bit more systematically. And so my first step has actually been gathering data. Uh, so I've actually been able to make API requests to our CI server. And what we're the way we figure out flakiness is looking at the commit hash that a particular test suite run has executed on. And if there's more than one CI build for a given commit hash, we know that's probably some kind of flakiness. It could be some like a legitimate failure that somebody assumed was flakiness and so they just reran CI. But the symptom that we are trying to address is the fact that we have a very high level of people re-verifying their code. And so to do that, or to figure out some stats, uh, I made a request to the API, grouped by commit hash, and then was able to get the stats of how many re-verifications there are and even the distribution. The classic way that you would do that is in Ruby, you would use the group by function from enumerable, and then you would transform values instead of having, like say each commit hash then points to all the builds, uh, an array of builds that match that commit hash, uh, you would then sum those. So now you have commit hashes that point to counts of how many builds there were for that commit hash. Uh, newer versions of Ruby introduced the tally method, uh, which I love which allows you to uh, basically do all of that in one step. One thing that I found really interesting, though, is that that will then give me a hash of commit hashes that point to the number of builds that were there. If I want to get the distribution for the whole project over the course of, say, the last week, and I want to say, how many times do people run only one CI run versus running twice in the same commit versus running three times or four times or five or six times. Uh, I want to see that distribution of how many times people are rerunning their build. You're effectively doing that tally process twice. If you start once, you have a list of all the builds, you group by hash, you count, and so you end up with that. You have that yeah, the Ruby hash of commit shahs pointing to a uh, number of times the build was run on that. And then you, again, group by the number of builds for each commit SHA. And so now what you have is you'll have something like one, and then that points to an array of SHA1, SHA2, SHA3, SHA4, like all the, the builds. And then you tally that again, uh, or you transform values, or however you end up doing it. And what you end up with is saying, for running only once, I now have you know 200 builds that ran only once. For running twice in the same commit SHA, there are 15. For running three times, there are two. For running four times, there is one. And now I've got my distribution broken down by how many times it was run. It took me a while to like work through all of that, but now the shortcut in my head is going to be you double tally to get distribution. 
as an aside, the whole everything you're talking about is interesting, like getting to that distribution. I feel like I've tried to solve that problem on data recently and, and struggled with it, but particularly Tally. I just want to spend a minute because Tally is such a fantastic addition to the Ruby standard library. I used to have in sort of like loose muscle memory, transform values, it was group by ampersand itself, transform values count, sort reverse to H. That whole string of nonsense gets replaced by Tally. And oof, what a what a beautiful example of Ruby and Enumerable and all of the wonder that you can encapsulate therein. Uh, Enumerable is one of the best parts of Ruby. I, I love it so much. It was one of the first things that just blew my mind about Ruby when I started. I came from a PHP C++ background and was used to writing for loops for everything. And not like the nice like for each loops that a lot of languages have these days. You're writing like, you know, a legit like for or while loop and you're managing the indexes yourself and so much room for things to go wrong. And being introduced to each blew my mind. I was like, this is so beautiful. I'm not dealing with indexes. I'm not dealing with like the raw implementation of the array. I can just say, do a thing for each element. This is amazing. And that is when I truly fell in love with Ruby. I want to say I came from Python most recently before Ruby, and Python has pretty nice list comprehensions. Uh, and in fact, in some ways, like features that Enumerable doesn't have, but still coming to Ruby, I was like, oh, this Enumerable, this is cool. This is something. And it's only gotten better. Like it still keeps growing in the idea of like custom Enumerables. And yeah, there's there's some real neat stuff in there. I'm going to be speaking at RubyConf Mini this fall in November. And my talk is all about enumerators and ranges and enumerable and ways you can use those to make uh, the APIs of the objects that you create uh, delightful for other people to use. That sounds like a classic Joel talk right there that I will be happy to uh, listen to when it comes out. A very quick related, a semi-related aside. So Tally, beautiful addition to the Ruby language. On the Rails side, there was one that I used recently, which is where missing. Have you seen where missing? I have not heard of this. So where missing is fantastic. Let's assume you've got two related objects. So you've got like a uh, has many blah. So like a user has many posts. I think you can, if I'm remembering it correctly, it's user where missing posts. So it's where dot missing and then parentheses the symbol posts. And under the hood, Rails will do the whole left outer join where the count is null, et cetera. It, it turns into this wildly complex SQL query or like understandably complex, but like there's a lot going on there. And yet it compresses down so elegantly into this nice little active record bit. So where missing is my new favorite addition into the Rails landscape to complement Tally on the Ruby side, which I think Tally's Ruby 2.7, I want to say. So it's been around for a while. And where missing might be a Ruby 7 feature, might be a 6 something, but um, still wonderful features, ever evolving, these tool sets that we use. One of the really nice things about Enumerable and Family is the fact that they build on a very small amount of primitives. And so as long as you basically understand blocks, you can use Enumerable and anything in there. It's not special syntax that you have to memorize. It's just regular functions and blocks. Well, Chris, thank you so much for coming back for a visit. Uh, it's been a pleasure, and it's always good to, to have you share uh, the cool things that you're doing at Sagewell. Well, thank you so much, Joel. It's, it's been an absolute pleasure getting to come back to this old bike shed. And again, just to uh, to add a note here, you're doing a really fantastic job with the show. I've really it's it's been interesting transitioning back into listener mode for this show. Uh, 
weirdly, I wasn't listening when I was a host. Um, but now I get to, I've, I've regained the ability to listen to the bike shed and really enjoy the episodes that you've been doing and the, the wonderful spectrum of guests that you've had on and variety of topics. So yeah, thank you for, uh, for hosting this old bike shed. It's been great. And with that, let's wrap up. Show notes for this episode can be found at bikeshed.fm. This show is produced and edited by Mandy Moore. If you enjoyed listening, one really easy way to support the show is to leave us a quick rating or even a review in iTunes. It really helps other folks find the show. If you have any feedback, you can reach us at at underscore bike shed or reach me at Joel Ken on Twitter or at hosts at bikeshed.fm via email. Thank you so much for listening to The Bike Shed and we'll see you next week. Bye! This podcast was brought to you by ThoughtBot. ThoughtBot is your expert design and development partner. Let's make your product and team a success.